Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. So this morning, guys, um, we're in this passage of scripture that is a little, uh, little tricky, okay? It's, um, as the scripture reading was happening, you're probably like, okay, that was a little hard to follow. Um, she did, Sarah did a great job reading. It was more, it's a harder passage to follow. And so um, we're going to kind of uh, dig into it, though, because there's something truly wonderful here. Um, how many of you guys eat pomegranates? Okay, pomegranates are awesome. Are pomegranates easy to eat? No, they're a total pain, you know, to pick at them and dig in them. Crab legs, something that I don't normally order because I'm like, it's so much work, you know? But crab is like so good. This passage is kind of like that. You got to get out your little cracker thing, you know, and bust them open. You got to pick. But then what you find in here is truly beautiful. This is one of those passages that when it opens up is something that's just going to totally excite your heart. Um, what we're talking about here really is covenants. There's two covenants that are mentioned in here. One is a covenant to Abraham. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. And then there's another covenant here called the Mosaic covenant. It's a covenant given through Moses. Uh, what is a covenant? A covenant is a relationship uh, between two parties where they make legally binding promises to each other. And these have real life consequences. And uh, so a covenant is not just a contract, like a dry, like property contract or something like that. Uh, it is a, it forms a relationship. The one that we think about most is what? Marriage, right? Marriage is a covenant. It's legally binding, but it's also deeply personal. And that's what these covenants are that God has made. And I want to give you a little overview of the covenants. And I'm going to use the whiteboard one more time. Wow. Well, what a response for the whiteboard. We're going to have to put it away lest there be idolatry. You guys are a little, you guys are a little too excited about the whiteboard. Makes me wonder. I don't think they would have allowed this uh, in Moses' time. Like, they're getting too excited about the whiteboard. Put that thing away. Um, so I want to show you a few covenants. And so first what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a timeline, right? So here's a timeline, okay? And uh, here is the beginning of time. You guys realize that creation, it was the beginning of time, matter, and space, isn't that wild to think about? Beginning of time. And so we're going to put a symbol back here, a little eternity symbol. This is like eternity past is what people call it. It's hard to even know what to call it before time. God existed eternally before time. And you think like for a long, long time before, and you're like, no, no, there wasn't any time. It's totally confusing, right? So we call it eternity past. And there's a few covenants I want to show you. The first covenant I want to show you actually happened here in eternity past. It's called the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption, it's right here. And the covenant of redemption, um, hinted to in Ephesians 1 and John 17, is a covenant between the persons of the Trinity. Okay? So this doesn't involve human beings. This is where the persons of the Trinity, you can read about in Ephesians 5, where God predestined, he elected a people, he, he elected a plan to save those people. Christ was chosen as the one who would sacrifice himself. He offered himself in this covenant of redemption. And then the Holy Spirit determined at some point in your life to come into your life and make you alive to God. This is a plan they had before the creation of the world. Amazing. Okay, next covenant would be after creation, and it's right here. And um, theologians call it the covenant of works. And the covenant of works was a, a covenant made with Adam. You can read about it in Genesis 2. Adam made, uh, God made Adam, put him in the garden. It says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it, which is his gardening work, and to keep it, which means to defend it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat it, you'll die. Okay? And so this was a covenant that was a conditional covenant. It was conditional on Adam's obedience. You obey, you live. You disobey, you die. Conditional. Okay? Not a promise. It's a law. 
the next one would be um, right here. Um, at some point afterwards, Adam um, disobeyed God and um, lost privilege to the garden, was cast out of God's presence. He had eaten of the tree. The serpent had deceived him into doing that. He, um, he's cast out, and God immediately, this is so cool, even when he's dealing out curses for that disobedience, he gives a promise. It's in Genesis 3.15. As he's speaking to the serpent, which would be a personification of Satan, he said this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here is a hint at the gospel. And the gospel hint here is that someday somebody born of the woman, a seed of the woman, an offspring of a woman would come and crush Satan's head. Okay, would crush his head. You're going to bite his heel, but, um, but he's going to crush your head. And this promise was an unconditional promise. God's going to do this. I'm going to do this no matter what you do. I'm sending a redeemer. The next one would be a little bit later, and it would be the uh, Noahic covenant. And this was a covenant to Moses. And you guys remember this one. When, when um, God had flooded the earth, at, at the end of that, God makes a covenant with Noah and tells him this in Genesis 9. He says, Behold, I established my covenant with you and with your offspring and with every living creature. It's weird. This one's made with all of creation. Never again shall I kill all flesh by cutting them off with water of the flood. Neither shall all, there all be destroyed um, by water. So he made this. And remember the covenant sign? It was a rainbow, right? And you guys know what that is, right? It's not a bow like a bow on a package. It's a bow like a bow you, you shoot with an arrow with, okay? This is God taking his war bow and hanging it up in the sky as a promise that he is not going to destroy the whole world again with water. Unconditional covenant. Next one came a little bit later. Um, it's a covenant to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. And this was a covenant that God made with Abraham. Starts in Genesis uh, 12. This is the first one we really would have a kind of a basic date for. This would be about 2000 BC. God makes this promise to Abraham. Starting in Genesis 12. He says, The Lord said to Abram, Go away from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. God, over several times that he talks to him about this covenant, he promises Abraham a deep relationship with himself. He promises him many descendants. You know, if you could number the stars, you would know how many descendants you'd have. And this was amazing because Abraham didn't even have any kids at that point. Um, he, he, they, they were basically infertile. How is God going to do this? He promised him descendants. He promised him a land, right? He showed him that land. He said, this is a land your people are going to inherit. And he promised him one particular descendant that was somehow going to bless all nations. And so that's the Abrahamic covenant. And it's unconditional. Over and over again, he says, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Not conditional on Abraham's obedience and his faith. Good thing, because he does a lot of shady stuff afterwards. And the covenant still happens. Okay, that's the Abrahamic covenant. Next one would be the Mosaic covenant. And this is a covenant that God makes through to Israel through Moses. And this would be about 1500 BC. And this would start in Exodus 20, where God gave the law to Israel through Moses. And there are three components to that law. There was a moral one, kind of our relationship with each other and with God. There was a ceremonial one, how they would manage things in the temple and sacrifices and things like that. And then there were even civil laws. You guys realize, like, even their civil law was in there. So there are laws about, like, you know, if you have a house and you have a deck on the top, you got to put a railing on that thing so people don't fall off. I mean, it covered everything like that, right? And this made Israel a distinct people in the world. But it was very conditional, right? It was a very conditional covenant. It's, it was a law with blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And so you get that chilling scene on, in, in Deuteronomy 28 on Mount Ebal 
where he's calling out like, blessed if you do this, blessed if you do this, here's how I'll bless you if you follow my laws, and then what? Whole list of curses that are super disturbing. And um, that's what that law was like. It was conditional. It was based on obedience. And then there's another covenant. What's the next one? It's the Davidic covenant. Davidic covenant was um, a little bit later, more like about 1000 BC. It's in 2 Samuel 7. This is where God promised King David that one day one of his descendants would reign on the throne of David forever. It's a promise of an eternal king who would rule in righteousness and bring his kingdom in that would never end. And it's unconditional to David and his people, but it was conditional on that king, actually. That king needed to be an obedient king. He needed to be uh, righteous. He needed to follow everything that God has said. Who is that king? Christ is that king, right? He is the Davidic king. All these covenants, guys, point to Christ. They're all building a story that points to Christ. And we're going to have an Advent series. We're going to start that in the beginning of December. We'll have four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, which is, um, which is a Sunday. And we'll meet on, uh, in the morning on Christmas Eve. And what we'll do is we'll trace through the Old Testament, the story of Christmas. And so we'll look at Christ as the son of Eve. We'll look at Christ as the son of Abraham. That'll be the second week. Then we'll look at Christ as the son of David. And then we'll, on Christmas Eve, Christ as the son of Mary. And we'll look at how each one of those things shows a different thing about Christ's person and work. So it's going to be super cool, super exciting. Um, last one is what? The new covenant. The new covenant. And that's the one we're currently enjoying. That's the permanent covenant. And that's the one that um, Christ talked about in 1 Corinthians uh, 11.25. It records his words at the Last Supper. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood when he was talking about communion. So this is, you know, during the Last Supper. And in it, God promises, he brings forward all those promises he made to the nations and he puts a face on it. That Christ will be the one that will bring forgiveness and grace through his death and he'll give the Holy Spirit. And then he gives us covenant signs with it, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, And, and it also promises this, that one day he's going to make the world new. That's kind of a world, huh? There'll be a new world. He'll make everything new and we'll enjoy his presence in resurrected bodies and a resurrected earth with, in God's very presence. So that's that. Yeah, that's that new. And you might ask a question about this. You might say to yourself, well, why does God do this over such a vast stretch of time, you know? Why does he do all these different covenants, you know? Some people think he's experimenting, like, oh, let's try this. Oh, that didn't work at all, you know? Let's try, okay, let's try the Abrahamic one. Ooh, you know, and then we try the law of Moses. Boy, that really didn't work. No, that's not what he's doing. He's not experimenting. He knows exactly what he's doing. What he's doing is he's telling a story over vast periods of time. It's a story about himself. These are all parts of it. And you might say, well, why doesn't he just skip ahead to the new covenant and get to the good stuff? But guys, the same question could be asked of Tolkien, right? Why do you write Lord of the Rings in 1178 pages, right? Why not just skip to the return of the king, the good stuff? Because it's a story. God's telling a story over time. He's spinning this epic, beautiful story. It's a story about his glory. And this whole world, this whole universe actually has been created as a stage for that story. And the covenants are kind of the, the backbone of the story. They're the vertebrae that are holding this whole story together, and guys, um, I want to remind us, and I know you guys know this, but it's his story, not yours, okay? We live in this kind of real postmodern time where everybody talks about, everybody's got their own story. You got your own story, and you're the author of your story, and you decide kind of how the story's going to play out, and you're the main character, right? And you decide how your story's going to play out, and there's a lot of language like that. I mean, you'll see that in a lot of, you know, things on social media and in movies and stuff like that, Right? Guys, it's easy to think in an environment like that, that when you come to Christ, that you're adding Christ to your story. 
Okay? Testimonies can even sound like that, right? Like, I got this grand story I'm telling of my life. I'm the author. And you know what? I added a new supporting character. His name's Christ, right? Like, it could sound like that. And that's why a lot of times later on when obedience becomes hard, it's, it's you back away from Christ. He's a supporting character. He's in the main character, right? Guys, this story is about God and not about us. And he's the author and we're not. And we're not the main character, Okay? You're not the main character. And the sooner we realize that, so much more it's going to help. And guys, the fact that God is telling this vast epic story about himself over time says a couple of things about him. One is that God's an artist. God has amazing artistry. He loves this craft. He loves um, putting in these foreshadows to Christ. And the more you learn about the Bible, the more you see in the Old Testament, you go like, oh, that points to Christ. I was talking to a guy this morning about, you know, the, the ark. You know, and he was saying, do you think the ark might be a, a type of Christ that protects us from the judgment? And if we're in him, we're safe in him. And I'm like, absolutely. There's all kinds of foreshadows that point to Christ. And he loves doing this. He's not in a hurry to finish up the story. He's got something he wants to tell us. Also, it tells us that God's immense, guys. We're puny. We, we're, we're finite. He's infinite. And so he's playing out this epic drama so that we can take in more and more of him over time. And it engages your whole person, right? It engages both the intellect and the imagination, the right brain, the left brain. Um, he's doing something to reveal his glory for our joy eternally. You know, guys, the Westminster Confession, the first question, right, was the chief end of man, right? And it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what this story is about. A lot of times people go like, yeah, I don't know why he did all this. And, and some of these things are very difficult to understand. Like, how does this point to his glory and my joy? But you've got to know, by faith, you've just got to know that God is doing all things for his glory and our eternal joy in him. That's what he's doing. And you might say to yourself, like, um, and I can't imagine this. At the point I'm at right now, I don't like this story very much. You ever felt like that? You ever been in a place, you know, this is a time, you know, as the holidays come, it's a time of a lot of people have lost relatives around this time, a lot of people have lost people dear to them, and they start to think about those things during this time, and you could say to yourself, you know what, I don't like this story very much, and I know what you mean, okay, there's parts of the story that are, that are grim and difficult and dark, but I just want to encourage you guys, it's not over yet, you know, the story isn't over, when you see the end of what he's doing, you're going to be amazed and just explode in joy and, and worship to him. When he's done telling it, you'll see how perfect it is. And so here we are in this passage in, um, in, in Galatians. We're looking at verses 15 through uh, 29 of chapter 3. And Paul's question here is really about what happens at this point. You know, what's the relationship between this Abrahamic covenant and this Mosaic covenant? Um, in verse 14, he says, It's in Christ that all the blessings of Abraham come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so Paul's really got this question he's trying to answer, which is, did the law that came through Moses somehow negate the promises of grace that were in the covenant of Abraham? Okay, that's what he's doing. And stick with me, I know this is a little weedsy, but it's going to be really good. Okay, um, and so the covenant through Abraham was a covenant of promise. It was a covenant of grace. The covenant through Moses was a covenant of law. And so, you know, it's like this. It's like we hear from Abraham, we hear all the nations are welcome to God. Come, receive these promises. It's by grace. I will take this. It's not of works. Trust in me. Believe in me. And you'll receive God and all the blessings as a gift. But then it's almost like Moses comes in and he goes, yeah, but you got to do all these first. Right? It's as if he hands you a stack of laws and he says, yeah, I heard of that promise thing, but here's the law. You know, it's, it's, you could feel like a bit like you were invited into grace through Abraham and then stopped at the door, like by a bouncer. 
with Moses and loss. You're like, oh, good, it's all grace. And you're like, oh, no, it's all loss, right? And, and that's what he's dealing with here because those Galatian false teachers, that's what they were doing. They came to town. These guys are so, totally happy in Jesus, totally happy in God's grace, received him by faith. They feel totally included. And these guys come to town and they say, no, 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 no. If you're going to be saved by the Jewish Messiah, you're going to have to become a lot more Jewish. You're going to have to start keeping some of these Jewish laws like circumcision and the kosher laws and the holy days. And so the question here is, did God somehow void the promise of grace through Abraham when he gave the law through Moses? And Paul's answer is no. Look at verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. He's saying, like, I I gave promises of grace. He doesn't annul those. And he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, cannot annul the promise. For if the inheritance comes through the law, it is no longer from promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And so, stick with me. What he's saying here is he's saying, one thing you got to know about God is he does not annul promises. He doesn't promise a life of acceptance by grace through faith and then somehow do a bait and switch and make it something you have to earn. He doesn't give a gift to make you earn it later. And, and, and he's saying that the way that we receive this gift is not by earning through the law, but by faith in Christ. And the way he does it is really interesting. So he makes a big deal of this whole thing. Um, your translation probably and some others will say seed in there instead of offspring, which makes it way better English. Um, because he, in, in the King James, the New King James, it'll say, notice that in Genesis it says seed, not seeds. Okay, And what he's making this point is that Abraham, all those promises to Abraham actually get received by Christ. They're not actually made um, merely to a physical group of descendants, but to one particular descendant. He says, he says notice that the true inheritor of the promise is Christ. And so how do we get that? How do we get that promise that was given um, through Abraham to Christ? And it's by being in Christ. Remember we talked about union with him? That when you trust in Jesus, what happens is you become united with him. You become united with him legally. You become united with him legally, just like in a marriage union, where you have everything that the other person has. When you become united with Christ, you legally have everything he owns, including this inheritance that was given to Abraham. Does that make sense? I know it's a little, like, tricky, but... All that Christ has is yours because you're trusting in him. Because on the cross, all your sin became his. Isn't that awesome? That's, the, that's that great exchange that Christ did for us. So acceptance with God is based on faith through a promise given to Abraham. It's a gift. It's not earned by law. So the next logical question would be, why did he give the law? Like, why did he even give the Mosaic law if it wasn't meant as a way to save? And that's the question here. Is that your question? Like, what's it for if it doesn't save? That's his question, too. Take a look at 19. He says, why then the law? Why would God give all these laws for Moses if it wasn't meant to save anyone? And he's got two answers here. The first one is, he gave it to expose sin. God gave the law through Moses not to reveal salvation, but to reveal our sin. He gave it not to show us how to be saved, but to show us our problem. The law, guys, is like a mirror that shows you your sin. The law was made to be a mirror, not a ladder. It's not a ladder to somehow climb your way up to God. It's a mirror to show you your sin. Um, in medical terminology, God gave the law to be diagnostic, not therapeutic. Okay? The law is not therapeutic. So, for example, you know, when I hurt him in my disc really bad, in my back, take an MRI, get a good picture of it, right? 
And, and if I were to say to them, like, hey, shoot a couple more MRIs till I feel better, they'd say, it's not for that. Okay? The MRI is not therapeutic. It's diagnostic. The law is the same way. It wasn't meant as a way of alternative salvation. It was never meant to give life. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise? Is the law kind of a, another way to get saved? Certainly not. For if the law had been able to give life, then righteousness would come by, um, by law. But it's not, right? It's by faith. So the law was given through Moses not to save us, but to expose our sin. And then secondly, the law was given by Moses to expose our slavery. And this is different. Take a look at verse 22. But the, the scriptures imprison everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. And you think, imprison. The scripture imprisoned everybody under sin? And the Greek says that the scripture imprisoned the whole world under sin. Like, what's this about? What do you mean imprison? Guys, the law has been given to us to show us not just our sin, but that we're sinners. And that's different, okay? Not, it's been given to show us that we're enslaved to sin. It, it, it imprisons us in a way because it backs us in a corner, right? We say, no, no, I'm kind of a good person. And, and the law keeps boxing you in and it backs you in a corner. So you have to deal with what you really are like. The law shows us, guys, that we're not basically good people that occasionally do bad things. Okay, that's what we usually think about ourselves, right? Think, I'm a basically good person that occasionally does bad things. The law shows us, guys, that we're basically bad people that occasionally do things that look good, but that are also bad, okay? <laughs> like, that's what the law shows us. The law shows us that to the depths, we are sinners, that we have a problem, that we're imprisoned. That's what it's showing us. We're naturally, guys, slaves to sin apart from Christ. Jesus said this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And people will object, especially people that are you know, non-religious people, they're spiritual or whatever they are. They'll say, well, like, I'm not a slave to sin. I can stop anytime I want. To which I'd say, okay, stop. And you know what they'll say? Don't want to. That proves our point, okay? <laughs> that proves Jesus' point here. Because that slavery is a slavery of the will. It's a bondage in the will. It's a, it's a not wanting to do the right. Guys, you know what true human freedom is? True human freedom is the desire to do what is right and be able to do it. It's two components, right? It would be the desire to do what is right and the ability to do it. That's what true human freedom looks like. And what Paul's saying here and what Peter even says is that we don't have that apart from Christ. We're enslaved to our sin. And so sin isn't just a, 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 an act, it's a condition. And so when we see that it's a condition, we realize, guys, we realize that we need rescue. We're helpless. You know, we realize that we don't just fall short and need a little extra effort to try and measure up. No, we're totally under its power. We need rescue, and, and we need him. The law is not um, a ladder to somehow climb up to God to be worthy of him, but a mirror to show us our sin. And he uses two images that are really cool here to show us how it feels to be under the law's ministry, okay? When the law's doing this, when it's showing you your sin and showing you that you're enslaved to sin, how does it feel, okay? It feels like this. He gives two images. One's a prison guard. <laughs> the other one's a tutor. They're both not positive, okay? Look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The words here, held prisoner, locked up, that's what the Greek describes like a military guard imprisoning you. You know, like Jesus was held by the guards. That's the kind of imprisonment. He says the law feels like that. When the law is doing its work of, of bringing you to the end of yourself, it's going to feel like you're imprisoned. 
Uh, The second one is a tutor or a guardian. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In Paul's time, these tutors or guardians, they were usually like an in-house slave that would take care of the kids so that, you know, the parents could be off doing bigger and important things, right? So they're doing big things. This person would teach them things, but also watch them and make sure they don't get into trouble and things like that. Both of these images, guys, show what it's like to live under the law, to be still under that ministry of the law bringing you to the end of yourself. It feels like bondage. <laughs> when you think about prison guard and tutor, both of them are, are to restrict freedom, <laughs> right? They're both to, it, it both is a sense of not being free. It's a bondage. Also, you, it, there's a sense of distance. You don't have a cozy relationship with your prison guard usually, right? <laughs> there's a distance there. And also the tutor, the tutor shows distance. Where's the parents? You know, I don't have the parents. I have the tutor. There's this distance from God. So there's this bondage. There's this distance from God. And then there's this insecurity. We can't be certain about our standing. All gospelist religions, guys, feel like that if you're serious about them. <laughs> Some people dabble in things. But if you go really hard after a, a particular religion that is not the gospel, it will create bondage and distance and insecurity in you. And the law does that too for a time. And it's part of its ministry, but it has something really good it's doing to us. Look at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian for what? Until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So what the law does is it shows us our sin, shows us we're sinners, and drives us to Christ to show us that we need him. It brings us to the end of ourselves. Do you know what it means to be brought to the end of yourself? It means to come to a point where you go like, I do not have it. I don't even have the ability to have it later. I'm never going to be able to measure up to God's law. I don't even most of the time want to do it, and I can't bring myself to do it. It's to bring you to the end of yourself. That's what the law is for. And that's what the law was for actually in the Old Testament too. In the Old Testament, people were saved the same way as they're saved now. They were saved by being driven to the end of themselves by the law, and then they were saved by grace through faith in the Messiah to come. Yeah, Psalm 130 verse 3 says this. This is an Old Testament believer. Listen to the heart of the Old Testament believer. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, meaning like, if you, O Lord, are keeping track of how well I'm doing on the law, listen to this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? That's what the law is supposed to do. And then he says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So the law drove them to look forward to the Messiah and trust in him and be saved by grace through faith. And the law drives us to look back to what the Messiah has done. We're one people saved by grace through faith throughout time. This is throughout his story. And so the law through Moses, guys, was not an alternative way of salvation. And I think that's the thing we always think, right? We're hardwired to think that somehow the the law is a checklist, and once you check them all off, then you're right before God. You finally find a way to do all these things. I love checklists. I love checklists so much. I actually will write things I already did so I can cross them off, so I have, like, some momentum, right? I love checklists. Tosh knows this. I, like, live on three-by-five Post-its, constantly checklists, right? The law doesn't work that way because it's got things on it you can't do, right? When I was in vet school, I came home one time. I don't know why I'm telling you this story. It's a random tangent. Bear with me. Um, but uh, I came home from, from school, and I was hanging out at my parents' house, and, you know, I was super tired, so I was sleeping, and I come out, and my mom left me a checklist. I don't like checklists other people leave for me. So it was like, I'm like, I'm a grown man. What's going on here? And I'm looking at this list, and it's like, do this, do that, do this. And then one of them's uh, check puppy for eyes. And I was like check puppy for eyes. 
So she had been breeding these Sharpays, and uh, more and more genetic abnormalities were occurring in this line. Probably a lot of inbreeding, or line breeding as they call it. And so uh, she was convinced that one of the puppies did not have eyes. And sure enough, underneath the folds in hair, there were no eyes. Not, not even, like, it was weird. That was a checklist I couldn't accomplish. I mean, I could check for eyes, but I could not put eyes in. I was in vet school, and even after I graduate, I can't put eyes in a puppy. The law is like that. I guess that's why I'm bringing it up, is it's stuff that you can't do. It's to drive you to the end of yourself. Let me ask you this, guys. Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you, this is a really important question for everyone in this room. Most of you guys um, are, are Christians, you're professing Christians, you're people that take communion and you, you're here to worship God. Most of you guys are in that boat. But I would ask you, have you come to the end of yourself? Has the law done its work in you yet? Right? Have you gotten to a point where you just go, I just don't know what more I can do to make God happy. I just don't know what more I can do to live what he's given me to do. I'd say good. <laughs> then you're ready to receive Christ, right? Because some of you guys um, may have kind of come to Christ in a sense where you took him on as teacher maybe or Lord, but not Savior. You're not done trying to save yourself. You know, you're taking that checklist and you're going to do them, right? Because there's two ways to avoid Jesus as Savior. One of them would be the irreligious route, which we all are probably more likely to think of, which is to deny God's commands even convict us, right? And so when you tell somebody about the gospel and they say, you know what, I'm a really good person, God should be fine with me, right? You hear people say stuff like, I could never believe in a God who would judge someone. And what they're basically saying is, I could never believe in a God that would judge a person like me, okay? I can never believe in a God that wouldn't be totally happy with how I am already, Okay, that's what it's based, you're basically saying. And so that's an irreligious route, right? Um, is I'm a good person, I don't need him. That's an evasion of Jesus' Savior by not letting the law do its work. But there's another way too. There's a religious route. And the religious route is the route we would do. It's where we try to use God's law as a ladder instead of a mirror. Where you say something like, I know I'm a sinner, but I'll change. I'll do his law. I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever I need to get right with him. Right? You hear that language of getting right with him. Okay, what do you mean by that? Right? A lot of times that means I'm going to use God's law as a ladder. It's to look at the law and say, you know, okay, if that's what God wants, I'll do it. I'll get real serious. I'll start doing it. And so, at some point, I think he'll accept me. If I get to a certain percentage, maybe, you know, I'll feel his acceptance. That's avoiding him as Savior too, guys. Both those routes, the religious and the irreligious, are doing the same thing. They're avoiding Jesus as Savior. Both the religious person and the irreligious person are trying to be their own Savior. Neither has looked at the law and been brought to the end of themselves. And I think there could very well be people in this room, I'm not thinking of particular people, but that you could be at this tutor stage, right? You could be at this tutor stage where you've come to Christ in some sense, but you haven't given up saving yourself. You, you want him as teacher and master, but not savior. You, you decided, well, you know, I've come to the Lord to clean myself up and make myself right with him and somehow feel worthy. That's, the law has not done what it needs to do. You're looking at the law all wrong. You're using it wrong. You're like, why am I so miserable? You're using it wrong. It's not what it's for. It's a mirror, not a ladder. And guys, it feels awful to be in this situation. He says here, it feels like being under a prison guard. You know, if your Christianity feels like you're under a prison guard, you're probably in this stage. Um, it feels like being under a tutor. There's no nearness to the Lord. There's distance from him. There's uncertainty about where you stand with him. When you're having a bad day, you feel like you're not a Christian. When you, and you go back and forth. It's, it's the law has not yet done the work it needs to do. But I'll tell you what. The law will grind you down. I hope it does. I hope it grinds you down. I hope you get to a point where you despair so much 
that you could ever do it, and it just grinds you into the ground. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to do that so that you will joyfully receive Christ as your only righteousness. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm done trying this. I want Jesus as my righteousness. And then the tutor's work is done. And you know what your new life will look like? Look at verse 26. Your new life in Christ will look like this. It'll look like adoption. Take a look at this. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are in Christ and you're Abraham's offspring and heir to the promise. You notice that little in in verse 26, in Christ? That by faith in Christ, you have become in Christ. You become united with him so that each one of you have become sons or daughters of God because you're united with Christ. It's to receive him by faith, by grace, totally of Christ. And then you're his kids. And this is a totally different relationship than you have with the law, right? It was... It was uh, prison guard, you know, it was tutor, but now you have God himself for your father. And guys, this is the whole reason for the gospel. This is the whole reason for the gospel is to get God. Do you guys realize that? Like, what good would it be for you to be forgiven or have some measure of holiness or even have heaven if you don't get God? Piper asked this really convicting question years ago with John Piper. He said something like, you know, imagine that you knew you were going to have heaven and you'd have every family member you ever loved and every friend and every uh, thing that you could ever want in heaven, but God wasn't there. Would you be good with that? Convicting question, right? But God is what the gospel is about. The gospel is about having God. The gospel is about ultimately about adoption because God himself is the greatest treasure and deepest happiness we could ever experience. And so the ultimate gift of the gospel is having God himself. Not just his master, but yes. Not just his savior, yes. His father. He wants to welcome us in. And it's so great, guys, to have a relationship with God where you simply rest and enjoy God as one of his kids. To know you're his kid. Um, you know, to, to know that God sees you as holy in Christ and that he so he can delight in you and enjoy you as a child, as the best of possible fathers. It's, it's like what we have on our cards, right? And, and this really shows in here, you see actually the purpose of the law in this quote on our cards, this Tim Keller quote. It says, the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, right? That's what the law does, right? It shows us that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Accepted as his kids because we're in his kid. You know, we're united with his kids such that he delights in us in the same way he delights in Christ himself. Awesome. So awesome. And so then we have an obedience, but it's a different motivation, right? You think, well, what about, you know, do we not, do we not serve him? Do we not obey him? No, we have a, a, a obedience. That actually will produce a far greater holiness and a far greater obedience to living under the law. Because now we're obeying God not from fear or insecurity or desire to prove ourselves, but from a heart that's thankful and full of joy and love for God. Now we'll follow him just because we want to please him and be like him. You know, that's, that's what kids do, right? You know, my kids do that all the time. They want to please you, right? They're not trying to earn anything from you. They already know they have your full acceptance, but they, they want to please you and they want to be like you. And so that's the motivation now. I love um, what William Cooper said. He was... Um, a hymn writer and an abolitionist and a poet in the, in the 1700s. And um, one side note about him is that he struggled severely with mental illness, uh, tried to kill himself multiple times, and just was really suffering. And John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, he was his pastor. And a lot of times, William Cooper couldn't even come to church. He was so just in his mind, just such a mess. 
And, um, and, and so John Newton would go there and care for him. It's a great relationship that they had. But William Cooper wrote some amazing hymns, right? Um, you guys probably know that one, uh, the one that says, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and everyone that plunges beneath it loses all their guilt and stains. Like, amazing graphic. I mean, you know, hymns like that. Well, listen to this one that he said about the law and about um, becoming sons. He said, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Isn't that awesome? That's what it's about. It's about seeing the gospel and what he's done and seeing our adoption, and he changes duty to choice. Um, this week I'd posted a, a, a quote from Dallas Willard. He was a USC philosophy professor. He's, he's dead now, but he was the head of the department at one time. And he was a Christian. It was kind of a novelty there for them, I'm sure. And somebody said to him, hey, uh, Dr. Willard, why do you follow Jesus? You know what his response was? Who else did you have in mind? I just thought it was right. He always had things like that. So I posted that, but an older family member of mine who stalks these things um, wrote me, because he doesn't do the battles on Facebook anymore. He writes me privately. It's nicer. And so he said, he said I have a question for you on this, you know, because he said, you know, who else, you know, who else did you have in mind to follow? And he, and he said this. He said, he said, why choose subservience? Why choose to be subservient to anyone? And I haven't responded to him yet, but I'm like, I think I, my response would be something like, you know what, it just doesn't feel like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not a word I would have picked. Hey, what's your relationship with God like that? Like, subservience. I'd be like, it's sonship, right? I'm his kid. Like, I have, you know, full acceptance through Christ, and I love him, you know? It's, it's you only understand it from the inside. It feels like adoption. One last thing I want to say to you guys in reference to the little planet I drew on here is that we're going to enjoy the Father's presence in his company in a world made new. Do you remember the things that Abraham was promised? One of the things was land, you know? So there was a patch of land, right? Real physical, real estate, real physical land. Your inheritance in Christ is God himself and land. And it's not just the original promised land. It's bigger. I want you guys to turn to this. Look at Romans 4.13, because this is really cool. So Paul is talking about the same kind of thing he's talking about here. And he's talking about what we inherit in Christ. And he says something really interesting about the promise of land to Abraham. In Romans 4, 13, he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. And it did not come through law, but by, through righteousness of faith. Isn't that awesome? In the other passages that talk that way, Jesus said, The meek shall inherit what? The earth. God is one day when Christ returns as that Davidic king and comes and judges and reigns here and makes things new. He's going to make the world new. He's going to make a new world. You read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. He is going to make a new world. And I'm just thinking, guys, can you imagine what it's going to be like to live in that new resurrected world in your new resurrected body with the resurrected glorified Jesus in the presence of our Father enjoying that fellowship forever? It's going to be awesome. If some of you guys have a really deficient view of heaven, you think it's kind of a, a hazy, light blue background with white puffy clouds, and we're occasionally going to strum harps, which sounds torturous, right? But the vision here is that we get everything back that was lost in the garden and more. We get God's very presence continually. And so in that place, we're going to plant and harvest, and we're going to design and build, and we're going to make music and art, and we're going to explore the place and cultivate it and laugh and sing, and it's all going to be in the presence of our Father, and we're going to feel the warmth of his loving, approving, accepting, just cherishing heart. 
It's going to be so good, guys. None of us are going to be there, though, because we're worthy by the law. It'll simply be because we believed in the promise of God by a gracious, from a gracious, good God. And guys, we're going to have an opportunity there, I think, to look back at this epic story he's written and see how it points. Everything in it points to his glory. Because I know some of you guys are going through extremely difficult times right now, and there's things that you feel like giving up, and you feel like, you know, following Christ, is it worth it? You know, like, I'm losing my hold. And I would just say, hold on, because this, when we look back and we see the epic story he's written and how it points to his glory, how every little detail will show, like, oh, he was so wise. You know, I, when I was going through that trial, I was thinking to myself, how could this be of any good? What's God doing here? But it was so wise. And look at how it shows his goodness. And look at, look at how it shows his love. And we're going to see all the artistry in the thing, you know? And we're, it's going to, every single thing that we look at, even the biggest sufferings in our lives are going to cause us to explode with joy and thankfulness and praise to him. Because we're going to see what he was doing. He's doing something great, guys. The, uh, the, the sci-fi writer Orson Welles, he said this, if you want a happy ending... That depends, of course, on where you stop the story. The story's not over, okay? It's going to be great. From the high plains, guys, of the new world, we're going to see the whole story and we're going to love him for it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just continue to stir our hearts to love and trust you, seeing that you are a good and sovereign and gracious and loving and wise God, who's working all things together for your glory and our good, and we thank you for that, and uh, we pray that we'd be able to hold on to that this week, and we pray, Lord, too, that you would um, help us to come to the end of ourselves. I don't know if there's anybody here in this room that is still trying to work the checklist to kind of earn the score that would be able to earn your favor. Lord, I pray they'd tear it up, and today they would come forward as they take communion and trust completely in the righteousness of your son. We pray, Lord, that we would leave completely trusting in him. Give us hearts of worship in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.